When I was a child, my dad and I got ourselves into some trouble. We lit the fire, we forgot to open the flue. And you've probably done that. The family room just filled with billowing smoke. Uh, was black and dark. We couldn't breathe. We rushed to the flue, but couldn't close it. With time, it was just too late. So we ran to the windows and rolled them um, open. But the uh, wind was not moving. <clears throat> and we knew it was just a matter of moments before we would be able to hear mom's footsteps uh, coming through the kitchen into the family room. And uh, the trouble would get worse. But in a moment of what I consider brilliance, I had an idea. I see, my dad had just bought a yard blower, one of those electric models, you know, and it had a power cord on it, and on the box it said it could produce air speeds of 120 miles per hour. So I said, Dad, the blower. Yeah, so we ran out to the garage and grabbed the blower, and this was working great until my dad turned from left to right and the blower passed by the shelves, which had mom's collection of china plates all on these little stands, about a dozen of them, flew up into the air like so many leaves and down to the ground. <laughs> when my mom did come through the kitchen door, uh, she had a question for us. There's a certain power to a good question, isn't there? That's where I was going. Um, we all have questions. We learn through questions. They say a leader isn't somebody who has all the answers, but somebody who knows the right questions. Like the old poem says, I had six faithful friends. They taught me all I knew. Their names are how and what and why, when and where and who. Those of us who come to church particularly have questions. We have a lot of questions we'd love to ask Jesus, hope to do it someday. But Jesus has his own questions of us, doesn't he? Did you ever notice how many questions Jesus asked of people? It seemed to be almost the way he would teach. Good questions, hard questions. Let me just read some of them for you. He, he asked, what is it you want? Or which one do you think was a neighbor? Why are you so afraid? Yes, what good does it do to gain the world but lose yourself? Another good one. Can you add an hour to your life by worrying? He asked, who do you say that I am? And do you want to be made well? Wouldn't it be interesting just to sit with those questions and let them do their penetrating work one by one in our lives? And wouldn't it be helpful to have a guide who would lead us through those questions and help us to find our own practical answers to just uh, so many questions? Well, I made an interesting discovery this summer as I was away studying that Jesus isn't the only one asking questions in the Bible. In fact, there's a letter in the New Testament that's filled with questions. It's written, we're told, by a man named James who simply identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, James. Now, we don't know for sure who this James was, but by the time this letter was written, James the Apostle had passed away in all likelihood. <clears throat> and so since this writer seems to say nothing more than that his name is James to a regionally distributed letter, it's likely he was a very famous James. And the, other than the Apostle, the most famous James in the New Testament is James the brother of Jesus, James the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Now, if I tell you he's the brother of Jesus, you might not be surprised to find that he asked so many questions, would you? But in this letter, the epistle, we call it, of James, there are 
24 questions. Just to give you a benchmark, uh, James has five chapters and 1 Peter and 1 John also have five chapters and each of them only ask four questions respectively. But James, 24 questions. So I want to suggest to you, he is our guide, taking the questions of Jesus and applying them in practical ways to life and the way that you and I live it. So today we begin a new series. It's called, How's That Working? And it's a question. It's a question that will guide us through James's questions in this great letter of questions. They're questions we'll discover that open up our lives to Jesus's fresh answers. Over the next uh, several weeks, we'll be looking at practical problems and let James ask the questions of Jesus about those problems. We'll be talking about our relationships, our money, our career, our time. But today we begin with trouble, trouble. We begin where James begins with this subject that affects all of us at one point or another. We begin where James ends. In fact, at the end of his letter, he asks his question about trouble. He says in chapter five, verse 13, are any among you suffering? Are any among you suffering? The question's at the end, but the topic begins at the beginning. So let's pull out our Bible to James chapter one. And uh, our text today is James one, verses one through eight. If you're able, will you stand with me? Let's read this text aloud together. You're gonna find this on page 980. And as you read, I would invite you to look for James's two redemptive strategies for suffering. Let's read together, James chapter one, verses one through eight. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. <clears throat> James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. In uh, 1989, a Czechoslovakian playwright fell into trouble. Václav Havel was uh, just enjoying a bonfire feast with some friends at the end of the day. It was dark and he was walking along a path when he fell into a hole that he couldn't see it. It turned out to be a sewer. It was deep and surrounded by a concrete wall and there was no way out. He talked about his fear uh, in an article in Esquire magazine that he was going to die in that moment. He was trying to tread in what he calls this fundamental mud. It was a horrible, dark, dark hole. For more than 30 minutes, his friends on the surface scrambled around in a panic trying to save his life as Václav Havels could do, do everything he could to keep his nose uh, into, in the air. 
Eventually, somebody found a ladder and they lowered it down and his life was saved. In this article in Esquire, Havel writes, who could have known I was to leave this unfortunate sewer only to end up in the president's office two months later? I think he intended a little irony uh, in that comment, but there's something about that experience of falling into trouble that James seems to think is common to all of us. Because notice the language that he uses uh, here in verse two. He says, whenever you face trials, Whenever you face trials, just take a look at that, that this um, word face literally means fall among. Fall among or fall into. It's, it's, whenever you drop into trouble, he's saying. And, 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 and notice the whenever. It's not if. It's whenever. It's, 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 he assumes that all of us at one point in our lives will fall into trouble, will experience uh, suffering. And we do, and sometimes it happens frequently. So this is whenever you face uh, trials. Now, what do you do at this point? This is the question James puts before his readers. What do you do? I ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, and, and what do I do? And how's that working? What would be different if we took into account these two redemptive strategies that James offers his audience in the first century? Well, let's look at these. The first one uh, is consider. There are two major imperatives. By the way, notice there are two paragraphs here, and the, the main verb is the beginning of each of the paragraphs. Everything else sort of follows from that. And then the first of these redemptive strategies is in the verb, the imperative, consider. Consider with joy. When you fall into that hole, think about, think about your situation with joy. Now, it's not that the trouble is good. We don't want to say that at all. James certainly doesn't say that, but good can come through it. You see what he says? Because knowing the testing of your faith can produce endurance, you can bear up under it. And let that endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, reach your goal, and complete, absolutely whole. Now there's lots of evidence that this actually happens uh, in our lives. I saw this fascinating article uh, recently. There was a report in the National Academy of Sciences just last month that did these experiences, experiments. And I love you scientists, the things you put us through to learn uh, about God's creation. But um, the experiment they did, it was about altruism. And they took a group of students, this was in the University of London, and they, and they told half of the students that they were in what was possibly the worst department in the university. And then they took the other half and they said, you're possibly in the best, the big greatest department at this university. And then the researchers spilled a big box of pens in front of each of these students. And you know what they found? The students who were told they were in the worst part of the university picked up many more pens than the other ones. Then they did another one where they took uh, uh, students to take a test and no matter what the, the students answered on the, on the questions, they just told half the students that you were amazing with the way you passed that test. You did a great job. They told the other half, you failed the test. Then they put them in a room and they asked them to have a group conversation about finding an apartment and finding a roommate. And they had some people who were watching physical, verbal clues. And what they found was that the people who had been told you failed the test smiled more, they were nicer, they were more cooperative, they were better human beings. <laughs> what does this show? The, the conclusion is that, you know what, our struggles, our experiences of failure tend to make us better. That's interesting. 
Now, one of our members here, you may know Ted Twing, he usually worships down at Union. Uh, he did his own study. And I won't go into the methodology of it. He was very careful and elaborate, but he interviewed hundreds of people, most of them at UPC. And he tried to find out, his question was, what causes spiritual growth? What causes spiritual growth? And there were a lot of the expected things that he found on there, you know, about obeying God and, and uh, reading the Bible and, and prayer and a, an influential person in your life and community, and these things all do cause growth. But what surprised him, the greatest surprise, and he just shared this with our elders this month, was that the thing that was almost tied for first place was going through hard times. Going through hard times is what people told him caused spiritual growth in their lives. It was the single biggest factor for, for most of us. Now, that's interesting. There's lots of evidence. But I want to share a very personal story that uh, um, I experienced this week. I was down in Mexico this week on a mission trip with your high school kids. About 100 people went down. We prayed for them earlier as JJ led us through. And we have a picture here of our crew down there in Tijuana, Mexico. They built seven houses. Because of your kids, seven families last night slept for the first time under a roof they own. It's an unbelievable thing. And it was so cool. Yeah, it's, thank you to our kids. I don't think they're here. They, look at this, yeah, they get a standing ovation there in the balcony. You know, they're all sound asleep right now at home. They'll, they'll, they'll be with us worshiping this evening, but unbelievable. My daughter's one of them. See her swing a hammer. Oh my gosh, does my soul good. <clears throat> but, but while we were down there, I met a man named Lino. And we got a picture of Lino. You see, Lino is uh, paraplegic. And he came out, he's one of the owners of these new houses. He came out, he watched your kids build his house. I watched him there on Sunday. He sat in that wheelchair uh, through the hot, hot sun. The Santa Ana winds were blowing. And I thought, the kids are working hard, but I, think, I was thinking, this guy's probably much more uncomfortable than any other. There are no facilities up there on this dusty ridge. He's just sitting there watching vigils. I think to honor our kids is a way of showing appreciation for what they were giving him and his family. It was amazing. So I, I, I walked up to Lino, and I introduced myself, and he could speak English quite well. And um, I, I learned his story. And he said to me, um, George, seven years ago, I was in a car accident. I was hit by a car by a drunk driver, 21-year-old young man. And I went into the hospital, and I spent three months in the hospital, lost first my one leg and then my other leg. And for the next year, I dropped into a deep depression, and I got very close to taking my life. But his second daughter was born, and as she came into the world, Jesus met him. Somehow, Jesus used that experience to get Lino's attention and started to change his life and deepen his relationship with, with Lino. And it was a profound experience. I said to Lino, when he told me that he was hit by a drunk driver, I immediately said, that makes me really angry. I just gotta say, that makes me angry. And Lino looks up at me and he said, that made me really angry too. And then he said with a smile on his face, but Jesus took the anger away. And he raised up his arms, and he says, I forgive that man. I forgive that man. And the look on his face, and I thought, oh my gosh, this guy is twice as strong as any of us who have both of our legs. 
He's got a kind of a moral strength. And it came to him through trouble. So consider, consider your situation with joy. It's not good, but it might get you to a better place. God might be able to use it to make you a better person, more of a, the, the human being he has created you to be. That's the first redemptive strategy. Consider with joy. But then there's a second. And notice these two paragraphs are linked together by the link word uh, lacking. He says, you know, you could have everything you need if you would consider with joy, but you might be lacking something. If you were lacking something for this process to effectively work, it might be what? Wisdom. And so the second uh, uh, redemptive strategy is to ask for wisdom. I mean, just in case you can't consider it with joy because it's just too hard and you don't know how to think about it in any way that's joyful, then, then James says, well, why don't you ask? Why don't you ask for wisdom? Ask the one who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly and it will be given to you. And this raises the question, how do you make sense of your trouble? How do you make sense of suffering in the world? In this Esquire magazine, Václav Havel wrestled with this question. Remember, if you know Havel, he's one of my heroes. He's a, 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 a playwright of the theater of the absurd. And so meaning is an important question for him. And here's what he learned when he was down in uh, the sewer. He says, hope is a state of mind, not a state of the world. Hope is definitely not the same thing as optimism, Havel writes. It's not the conviction that something will turn out well, but the certainty that something makes sense, regardless of how it turns out. Something makes sense. To me, this is deep wisdom. Now, the question that I tend to ask when I'm in uh, suffering or I see suffering is why? Why? Why would this happen? Why would I have let it happen? Why would someone else have done something so stupid? Why would God let it happen? But we really don't get good answers to these questions so often. It just seems to be a mystery, and it's a troubling mystery in and of itself. I'm reminded of the story about the family who lived in the Ozarks. You maybe heard this. They'd never been to the big city, but when Junior turns 16, Dad says it's time to take the family uh, to the city, and so they do. They drive their, their, their truck to the, to the big city, and they pull up in front of the hotel. It's just fabulous, unbelievable, all these tall buildings. And, and Dad says to his wife, he says, um, honey, why don't you stay in the truck? We'll, we'll go figure out how to make this work. And they walk up to the door and swoosh, you know, the sliding doors open right up and they come into the lobby and there's a waterfall and a chandelier. Never seen anything like this. They go over to the side and they see these silver doors that open from the middle all by themselves. And people are going in and they're coming out and they're going in, they're coming out. And Father takes Junior over close to the doors and they look and they see these lights that are numbers and numbers are moving as they go up and down. They see this wrinkled old woman who's bent over on a cane and she goes into the, the, this room and the doors close behind her and they watch the lights go up and then the lights come down, doors open and there's this stunningly beautiful young woman who walks out. <laughs> and the dad looks to Junior and he says, Junior, go get mama. You know? <clears throat> There's a great transformation that happens, but not quite so easy pushing a button, and we don't really understand how it works, uh, do we? There's a mystery. We need wisdom, and there were two schools of wisdom around suffering in James's day that the Greeks had given them, the philosophers, the Epicureans. Uh, for them, uh, 
suffering, they're, they're, the way they made sense of suffering was really to, to run with it, run from it, because after all, the Epicureans thought that pleasure was the highest good in life, and so, of course, so there's no pleasure in suffering, so you just had to avoid it. You just had to run from suffering. It's the Epicureans. That was their uh, wisdom. There was another group of people called the Stoics, and, and they had a wisdom. They, they, they tried to make sense of, of suffering as well. They said, you know, everything is just tainted by suffering, and that's really all you could expect in life, so just sit with the suffering. Just sit with it. Don't run from it. Sit with it. Actually embrace it. That's the only way you can find any happiness in life is to embrace suffering. It's, it's kind of your lot in life. But James doesn't offer his readers either of these two wisdoms. Instead, he asks them to seek wisdom from God. This is a third kind of a wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. But this is interesting to me because we do know a little bit about Jesus' brother, James. And one of the things we know about Jesus' brother, James, is that he was not a believer. He didn't take in all of this stuff that Jesus taught about God's love and God's power, all the parables and everything. His brothers did not believe. He was not like the apostles who followed him around and just wrote it down and said, I, I accept all of this. James protested. It just seemed like it was too good to be true or not relevant in any meaningful way. It's so ethereal. But the other thing we know about Jesus' brother James is that Jesus made a personal appearance to him as he rose from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that on the third day, Jesus appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500, and then he appeared to James. I get this picture of Jesus risen from the dead looking for people, looking for people, and he wants to find his brother. And he comes and he looks at him and this is the moment that makes James a great man, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is the moment that would make James become the person who tradition tells us was nicknamed Camel Knees because he was so much in prayer. He would ask God for wisdom again and again and again. He was a man that knew he could relate to God through Jesus Christ in real time in the midst of his crisis. So James turns his readers to God. He says, ask God for wisdom. You say, God, well, why God? I never got a good answer about why I'm suffering from God. Well, God may not tell you why this has happened to you, but he will tell you what he's doing and he will tell you who he is. Alvin Plantinga as a philosopher has been credited by some with having solved the problem of evil and you may decide that's too much of a, an acclaim for you but he has this illustration he said you know just because you don't know what God's reason is for your suffering doesn't mean that he doesn't have one and the illustration is a tent if you, if you look inside a tent and I tell you there are no St. Bernard's inside the tent you can look in there and go yep there are no St. Bernard's inside the tent but if, you, if I say there are no no seams in the tent and you look in the tent, you can't say there are no no seams in the tent. Why? Because no seams are these little teeny insects and you don't see them. That's why they call no seams. So, but it's not, doesn't mean just because you can't see them doesn't mean they aren't actually there. And God's like that. He may have perception of the value of evil in your life that you don't have. So to consider it good requires an act of faith. And that's what James is calling his audience to. 
Well, I don't really know why this is happening, but I know what he is doing in the bigger scheme because I've met the one who's risen from the dead who has absorbed death and evil and overturned life in healing. And I know who he is. The one who walks with us through our suffering. So I think this is what, what Havel is talking about when he says, put your trouble in the context of a larger narrative that makes sense. You don't know why you suffer, but the gospel, the biblical story, is a wider narrative in which we see a God who is confronting evil, confronting suffering by suffering himself on the cross. And so Hebrews 12, similar language. He says, the writer there says, consider him, look to Jesus, consider him, look to Jesus who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So James and the writer of Hebrews doesn't call us to avoid suffering, doesn't call us to embrace suffering, calls us to endure it by looking to Jesus, by asking God for wisdom again and again, by relating to him, by walking, not running, sitting, but by walking, hand in hand. Put your hand into Jesus' nail-pierced hand and walk with him. I love the prayer that Juliana of Norwich offers us through history of the 14th century You may think about your own struggles as I read this. She says this, asking God for wisdom. Author of the world's joy, bearer of the world's pain, at the heart of our distress, let the inescapable gladness dwell. Holder of the heavy heart, healer of the grief of change, help us to turn to you, O God, and know that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So what's your strategy going to be, dear friends? Are any among you suffering, James asks us. If your answer today is no, I'm so glad. But I would ask you to prepare yourself, because greatness requires courage, and courage requires the capacity to face suffering. So get to know your Savior, Jesus, the one who brings life out of death. If your answer this morning is yes, I am suffering, then turn to him in prayer and ask, God, first of all, you wanna ask, get me out of this hole. And sometimes he does that. But after doing that, you'll ask him, God, give me deeper wisdom. Help me to know your presence. Help me to receive your strength. Help me to gain the character of Jesus and to join his redemptive mission in the midst of our suffering. Let me close by reading the words to you from a letter. Uh, Guido de Bray was a 16th century hero, a Dutch man in the Reformation, who was imprisoned for his faith and was soon to be hung when he wrote his last letter to his wife. And here's what he writes. Your grief and anguish uh, troubling me in the midst of my joy and gladness are the causes of my writing you this present letter. I most earnestly pray you not to be grieved beyond measure. If the Lord had wished us to live together longer, he could easily have caused it to be so. Let his good will be done then, and let that suffice for all reason. I pray you, my dear and faithful companion, to be glad with me and to thank the good God for what he is doing, for he does nothing but what is altogether right and good. I am shut up in the strongest and wretchedest of dungeons, so dark and gloomy that it goes by the name of the black hole. I can get but little air and that of the foulest. 
I have on my hands and feet heavy arms, which are constant torture, galling the flesh even to my poor bones. But notwithstanding all, my God fails not to make good his promise and to comfort my heart and to give me a most blessed content. Would you pray with me? Oh, great God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God of all comfort, God of all mercy, give us this comfort and help us to brace ourselves to follow the one who told us, yes, there will be trouble, but you have overcome the world. Help us to have hope, to live with hope, and to share it generously as your agents in the world. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen.